You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Melly Macker. Uh, Melly, could you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Melly Macker. Um, I'm on Twitter at EponaWest, that's E-P-O-N-A-W-E-S-T, and um, I'm just a freelance writer, and I live in Wyoming. <laughs> Uh, thank you for coming on today. Uh, in, in my mind, you, you're the ghost wife because that's, that's right. been your display <laughs> name for a, a, a long time. Um, and uh, so the origin of this uh, this uh, conversation is um, there's been a lot of talk in the past couple of weeks about cancel culture and uh, whether it is, you know, uh, the one of the great scourges of our time or perhaps maybe doesn't even exist in the first place. Um, so I uh, put out a, and I'm kind of ambivalent about what I feel about this. And I, I uh, asked on Twitter if anyone was interested in ta- talking to me about it, who had more shore feelings about it. And uh, you, uh, you volunteered. So thanks for thanks for volunteering for this conversation. And sure. and so I guess just the, the you know slight background I guess is, is well, it seems to me that the reason this is this you know we've been hearing about cancel culture or call out culture for a couple of years. And it flames up and down as various like instances pop up or whatever. And I think the one that set off this latest round was this guy who was hired by SNL, um, whose name is uh, Shane Gillis. Is that right, Sean Gillis? Yeah, it's Shane Gillis. Shane Gillis. And um, so the the you know SNL announces three new hires. Um, one was a woman I was not familiar with. One was the comedian Bowen Yang, who I know a little bit about and is a podcast host as well. Um, so he, and he is, uh, Asian American and he is gay. And then this guy, uh, Gillis, who I think most people hadn't heard of before and, uh, is, is, you know, a stand-up comedian and uh, a white guy. And very quickly, uh, people started circulating some old, like, podcast interviews or stand-up routines he had done that were, uh, had, like, racial slurs. And like stereotypical jokes, and so people started saying, you know, uh, particularly uh, uh, racial jokes and racial slurs against Asians. And so there was this weird irony of SNL hiring his first Asian American cast member, along with a guy who was using uh, slurs for Asian Americans. And then within within like a week or less, uh, SNL announced that they were like rescinding, you know, the offer of employment and. Uh, Mr. Gillis will not be a cast member on Saturday Night Live. Um, so that, so this was, I think, one of the semi-rare instances where, like, there was a very quick, like, like cancellation. Like, this guy, like, lost his potential job um, right. because of it. And so that sparked, you know, hand-wringing and, celebration, and celebrations and all sorts of stuff in an article by um, uh, our friend and former guest on this show, um, Osita Wanevu in the New Republic that maybe we'll discuss about cancel culture. Okay, so what do, what do you think about all this or about cancel culture in general? Well, like, one of the reasons that I was so quick to be like, yeah, I, I would totally love to come on your podcast and talk about cancel culture is because, like, last Monday um, I was in an airport and I saw a tweet and I quote tweeted it with something um, and I was, like, angry about this tweet uh, and it was from another side of Twitter that I'm not usually engaged with. Um, and because my phrasing, the phrasing in my tweet was like hostile. Uh, and because the person that I quote tweeted had like 25,000 followers, I suddenly had for like eight hours. Like I was, I got on a plane, got off a plane and drove from Colorado to Wyoming. Um, and over this entire span of time, I just had like tons of people yelling at me mm-hmm. and um, like not really, like responding to sense so much, but it was like, these people are so distant from me that it didn't really actually have very much of an impact on me other than in like real time. But it, it got me thinking like, like this is, this is sort of the, the base level, the most primitive form of, of cancel culture. Right. Um, when people just like get mad at strangers on the internet and they press the button that says cancel. So <laughs> like, um, and then they get madder when the button doesn't work because they get, for a lot of other things, like, you know, um, mostly comedians, it's usually comedians that, that have to talk about cancel culture and it's because it's their job to say things out loud. Um, 
And so there are more things to cancel them for than, say, like, a doctor. Like, doctors usually aren't saying racist things out loud. They just get to be doctors in private. Uh, and, like, what the elements of actual cancellation are, uh, what makes cancellation a thing? And then I I got really into my head about it. And so when you posted that, I was like, I want to talk about this. <laughs> like, I have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that it's, like I said to you, it's both real and it's fake. And the things that make it real are the power dynamics behind it um, and the material ramifications of the actual cancellation itself, right? Those are, like, the only two things that really matter. So, like, so when people yell at me on the Internet and try to, you know, they they press the cancel button um, and it doesn't work, the reason that it's not working is because they don't have power over me to affect my material position, right? Mm -hmm. But... And because like, as a, because as a freelance journalist, you don't uh, have a boss. I, I don't have a boss. I mean, like I have. I'm, I'm working on a project right now. They could hypothetically contact her, but like, like they wouldn't. Um, I don't like put out there like who I write for, and it's with a like a publication that's behind a paywall, so like nobody's gonna see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not writing anything that has to do with my the, the things that I'm saying on the internet. So like the the leverage that regular people have like in a group um over my material life doesn't exist (laughs) but it does in other cases and i think that shane gillis and um then also like later last week a tweet surfaced from megan amram Mm -hmm. did you see that no i didn't so megan amram is a very popular funny person on twitter and she has written for, uh, she writes for, the, she used to write for The Good Place, which wrapped up recently and makes funny videos and is generally celebrated by, by many people online. Yeah. So somebody dug up, a, a, a tweet from 2011 from, from her that was, you know, right around the same time that Shane Gillis was saying a lot of his offensive stuff. Like he continued. She just posted this one thing, um, as far as I could tell. And, you know, it, it was racist against Asian Americans and it was also extremely ableist against people with Down syndrome. So like you can see where the tweet was going from that description. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually don't know what the fallout from that really looked like. Most people just said like, this is a bad look, et cetera, et cetera. But like they didn't get really mad from what I could tell. There wasn't the sort of backlash uh, from people finding this tweet that there was for this dude who got hired on SNL. And I think that, like, that's interesting to me because there's they're very similar people with similar jobs where, like, they both do comedy. They both, you know, um, like, are higher up writing for NBC specifically. Like, right. you know. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I think I, I could come up with a couple differences between them, if you want to go off onto that tangent. Um, yeah, Megan Amram is good and probably tweeted that and then didn't delete it because she's, like, didn't consider it. Like, maybe she forgot that she tweeted it, but, like, I don't know. There's a certain there's a certain amount of, like, forgivableness because she's nice. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think that's an important part of it. Like, like, close to universally beloved among a certain sector of, like, people who are, like comedy... Uh, she seems like a nice person. She's made these very self-deprecating, uh, like fake TV shows that was trying to, she, she had this campaign to like, uh, win Megan an Emmy. And so she, she made a short, uh, online series called like an Emmy for Megan and what she was just like making fun of herself. And, um, so she, yeah. And she's very, she's a very talented person and, and talented at Twitter. Um, so everyone, yeah. So everyone likes her. Um, she also went to Harvard and she's a woman. Um, and, uh, Gillis, you know, kind of like, wasn't, he's not in that world. He, I guess he was like a, you know, just a stand-up comedian trying to make it and traveling around and doing gigs on kind of a, you know, medium to low level. And that's how he got the SNL audition. And he must be good at, you know, doing imitations or something because that's mostly what the people on SNL do is they imitate celebrities. And, uh, he didn't have... And I'm guessing also, like, he didn't have any sort of uh, powerful friends or institutional support that would have stood up for him and been like, oh, this, you know, okay, he made some mistakes, he's basically a good guy, give him a chance. Um, I mean, 
I just, I, I think that, like, just reading a, a bunch of the fallout from it, like, it seems like the reason that it didn't continue and that, like, they just, like, Gillis just sort of dropped it and walked away. It was like he was, he understood implicitly that he was going to be fine without a job on SNL. And so most of the argument that's been taking place in the public sphere has been about whether or not this should have happened. Not so much that his life is ruined, which is a few steps down from like the alarm that usually comes along with this sort of thing. Um, And also there was that, like there was that uh, statement that came from, I can't remember if it just came from the writer's room or if it came from Lauren Michaels, but like they hired Shane Gillis specifically to attempt to, to uh, attract the demographic of MAGA baby boomers. Like they wanted those people to be the ones who were, they wanted to pick up more of an audience from conservative people. And so they thought that hiring him would be a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and, And SNL is, I mean, it's such a weird cultural institution it's you know it's it's been around since the late 70s and run by the same person uh like how many like i don't think there's a single other thing you could say that has been around since since like 1977 and has had one person running it um it you know it's seen as like a very important comedy institution despite the fact that it's very rarely funny but it also it's bad it it launches (laughs) it launches the careers of you know, dozens of very talented, successful people. Bill Hader won an Emmy last night. Um, you know, he was he was on that show for a long time, playing stupid characters like uh, you know Stefan, the guy who the like kind of gay guy who went to clubs and giggled. But apparently, right. he's a very talented uh, actor, and uh, you know, he created this show Barry that I haven't seen, but everyone loves. So yeah, everybody says. And you know, uh, Tina Fey. Uh, I'm not going to say she's universally beloved, but uh, you have to say she's a very talented person. Um, yeah. And but at the same time, that yeah, the show itself is pretty mediocre, and where like I stopped watching. It's really it's it's for teenagers. Like it's, it's, it's <laughs> that's who it's aimed at. It's for teenagers, but also like it's for my parents. Like this is the weirdest part about it is that like my parents are like my dad was a conservative columnist for like twenty five years. Like, um, and my mom is just a weird Arizona libertarian, and they watch Saturday Night Live consistently and have for decades. And it's the strangest thing to me because they hate it. It's like nobody <laughs> likes it. <laughs> Yeah, they just want I mean, to see I, like I the ways that they're going to get mad. I assume there's some people out there who genuinely do enjoy it, and I enjoyed it when I watched it, you know, in the '90s when I was a teenage boy, because I think that that's kind of the demographic. And um, but yeah, I mean, but you, I mean, so at, at one time it's kind of this bizarre cultural relic that is mostly crap, and at the same time, like it's had a major effect on. Um, you know, American culture and launched the careers of, you know, there was this, Adam Sandler has this new uh, kind of comedy drama thing that the trailer uh, dropped today and people on Twitter were going nuts for it. Um, you know, Adam Sandler was, was playing a like boy scout who was being molested, you know, in the early nineties right. uh, on, on SNL. So it's just, yeah, it's just very, it's very, very strange. And I think like I was joking on Twitter that, um, you know, Lauren Michaels uh, has to hire one nondescript white man every year for as part of his contract with the devil that enables him to live for a thousand years <laughs> because they, they, they bring in these white guys who are just kind of interchangeable and um, sometimes they're talented, sometimes they're kind of anonymous and will fade away. And right. the Gillis, Gillis kind of seemed like um, that he was that guy for this year. It's like, they, okay, we have a woman, we have an Asian gay guy, we need to bring in a straight white man or else it's like too, you know, it still wants to be kind of a national program even though obviously the most people who work there are like you know new york liberals i I would guess although maybe they're they're also rich maybe they're more (laughs) they have conservative leanings as well um like you have to wonder like what they saw in this dude that was like going to appeal to baby boomer conservatives right like was it was it that he makes like racist edgy jokes or is it that he's a nondescript white guy <laughs> like and was funny enough to sort of be on Saturday Night Live um, yeah. and there's also just a weird side note a lot of there's a sizable number of people who came out of SNL in the 80s in particular who are who turned into like conservative pundit types or conservative activists uh, Dennis Miller John Lovitz 
Um, right. The woman who's is her name Valerie something I can't remember her name right now, but the one of the main women in the eighties um, on the show is is like a very vocal pro Trump person, <laughs> and um, you know uh, Rob Schneider spoke out in defense. Of, of oh Gillis. right, yeah. Um, he always has to talk, and then I get reminded that Rob Schneider is a person. <laughs> like when all this stuff always happens. Yeah, it's so, great. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. It's not like it's it's always been this bastion of like liberalism or or, or anything. Um, no, the only thing the only thing that matters about it is that it it is like you know it's something concrete that is endured for a really long time that is like, you can point to that and be like, that's a major part of American culture. That's an institution of American culture. And like in the way, if whatever it's doing is sort of like a harbinger of like the most flattened out, like watered down, um, version of a coagulated American culture that there could possibly be. You're just taking all of the opinions, you're smashing them together, you're rolling them out like a pie dough, and then you're pouring water on top of it. And that's what American culture is through the lens of SNL. And, like, that might... Some people might not see that as, like, like this is, you know, the liberal progressive version of things, but conservatives do. And that's because conservatives are constantly howling and wounded about how um, they don't actually have control over the cultural narrative of the United States, and they really want that. That's the thing that they want the most. Um, and so, like, anytime anything happens in terms of SNL, that that's something that they desperately want. <laughs> they want it to be conservative. They want to make fun of liberals and not the president only. Like, um they want to they want it to be jokes about safe spaces and you know all of these things that only exist on basically just college campuses and not really in real life these things that like that conservatives get really really uh verklempt about <laughs> like, <laughs> to use a word that was popularized on SNL was it yeah the on the um what was it the Mike Myers when he's playing this uh what was it uh, upper west oh, side yeah. talk show host uh, coffee talk with Linda Richmond right yeah she just <laughs> Uses all sorts of like Americanized Yiddish. Yeah, right? Yiddishisms and like fake Yiddishisms. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, even that, like, okay. The, the, I mean, just yeah, the fact that you used that word, um, I think, indicates the cultural power sure. of this show because that was a skit from like thirty years ago, and, and people are still <laughs> saying for Clint, which I think is a real Yiddish word, but like, you know, it's, I think it is was not one of the he like pop, no, probably not one of the ones heard. In you know uh, Jewish households in the you know the eighties or nineties. Okay, let's, let's. Do you have anything else on SNL before we got to move back to the cancel cancel stuff? No, I don't like talking about SNL. Okay, so no more SNL. So okay, so um, well, where should we take this? So I think the um, well, you mentioned comedy, and a lot of this seems to revolve around comedians. Yeah, and um, Osita's piece is primarily about comedy. And right. st- and starts off with a a recitation of um, the history of Lenny Bruce um, as someone as an example of someone who really kind of was canceled by the powers that be and kind of driven to driven to his death um, by his repeated like harassment by the authorities who would arrest him for indecency and, and things like that um, and there were some some parts of the history that I despite being kind of a comedy fan or nerd never knew about. And then, um, and then he kind of shifts to, you know, the current day and says, okay, who, who has really been canceled here? Um, comparable to, uh, Lenny Bruce, you know, like driven to overdose at the age of 39. Um, and yeah, no one, no one has hit those. <laughs> no one has gone. That hasn't happened. Yet. I mean, it is kind of interesting that, that in a, in like a dark twisted way that, there hasn't, with the, I guess with the possible exception of Jeffrey Epstein, there hasn't been a like prominent person who was like canceled or vetoed or something who died, um, like either through suicide or an overdose. Right. Shortly thereafter. And that's, that's kind of like, that's kind of the thing that's at the center of all of this, right? Like, um, like me too is a form of whatever this blob is that, you know, comes out as cancel culture or even more mildly as call out culture. Um, and what I thought was really interesting about Osita's piece specifically is that like, 
like he opens with the Lenny Bruce thing to bring up how like this this whole thing is about how power can be flexed over somebody's material life to ruin it and kill them. Um, and how like that's sort of not happening at all right now in any other way. And this is like a little bit of an issue that I have with the Me Too movement as a whole, that like in the case of everybody, except for Harvey Weinstein, like, um, and even then he's still just extremely rich. He's just not going to make movies anymore. And he has to go to court and hopefully he'll sit in jail, but he'll go to fancy people jail and then he'll get out and still be rich. Um, it doesn't there, like there's not a mechanism by which any of this like public support for, um, for rejecting a human being can actually have the material ramifications that, uh, the U S government had on Lenny Bruce. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's I, that's sort of like the brunt of his argument, and I really agree with that. I don't think that he really makes it as directly clear as like there is not a mechanism of power by which calling out and canceling is going to have enormous material ramifications on on anyone, um, and especially if it's you know powerful and famous people like um, I. I kind of want to shy away from, from talking about comedians a little bit in the context of this. Like, I know that it's, it's the center of Asita's article, which is, you know, it was good. Like, go read it. Um, but like, you know, there are other realms in which this happens, like specifically in terms of me too. And also like, um, when you talk about like cancellation in terms of comedians, comedians get mad. And <laughs> there's like this, this whole separate sub level of actually within like comedy culture, that they understand what their work environment's like. They have a better grasp on like what the reality of these, uh, um, these events actually are for comedians. And so like they, they talk it out and have been arguing for forever about it. It feels like at this point. Um, but yeah, like, like Osita, he, he brings in Lenny Bruce and that's a really good, like, this is the way that you can actually have your life ruined because of your career. Um, and somewhere in the middle of the article, he starts talking about uh, columnists and journalists who have been writing about cancellation culture and how they'll sometimes just go through lists or how people like David Brooks will be like, this is like Nazi Germany. <laughs> um, and the reason that it's not is because there's not a power structure condemning these people. It's just a it's a it's an agreement among a bunch of different people coming together and trying to make their voices loud as a collective. Right. It's not a top down like condemnation from a mechanism like the United States government or like the motion picture association. Right. (laughs) Like, um, these people aren't being blacklisted in any way. That's like McCarthyism, even though that constantly gets like compared because, like, Louis C.K., what, he was gone for a year and a half, and now he's back and he's doing comedy again without really issuing an apology. Um, Aziz Ansari, like, you know, he was canceled for, like, a while ago, it feels like. But it feels like he never actually really left. He was just sorry in public a well, lot. He, he, I think he, yeah, I think he took a, some sort of break. But, you know, it's not like a touring comedian is always touring. Like, they take time off to, you know, write new material or something. So, um so yeah, he came back. He has a Netflix special. Um, I mean, I think what's yeah, I don't want to focus on comedy exclusively, but I think what's interesting about comedy is, I mean, one, you have the like uh, the idea that the comedian is supposed to be like the provocateur and the truth teller, and you know that goes way back to like the medieval jester or something. And then you also have you know, well, you don't have a boss because you're a freelancer. Well, almost very few comedians have bosses unless they're like you know they're working, uh, writing for a sitcom or this, you know, acting as a sitcom or something, they're kind of free agents. And then they, they have to deal with all, you know, like, you know, all these individual, like small power centers around the country if they want to tour. And then they have right. to deal with, you know, it, like institutions like Netflix or HBO if they want a copy special. And so, yeah, there's no, I mean, w- people who want to like participate in cancel culture, um, and there's, there's pl- like, there's plenty of them. They want to get people fired. And that's, yes. that's, that's become the thing is like, we're going to get you fired and you, it's hard to fire a comedian because they are self-employed basically. Um, it's somewhat easier to fire, uh, other people, but you know, I mean, uh, 
a lot of people who are who you know when you're famous and prominent, you probably don't have a boss. Like Kevin Spacey doesn't have a boss. He's pretty much been drummed out of. Like he probably will not act again in a, like any sort of major Hollywood feature. But maybe he'll like work overseas or something, or do independent something or other, or self-produce something. Right. But whether or not he's he ever gets um you know uh, convicted of any sexual crimes, Hello. like his his career is basically over, even though he. Yeah, even though he, like, doesn't, uh, you know, he can't be fired. But the, yeah, but CK can just find a venue and a booking agent or whatever, and people will come because he's famous and he is talented and funny. Um, just a, a side note, one of the things I, I really didn't like about how all this played out the past couple of years is when, like, someone would get Me Too'd or canceled, and then people would be like, you know, I never liked them to begin with. They're, like, they fucking suck. Right. Uh, you know, a fucking hack. Uh, get the fuck out of here. We don't care about you. Like, no, Louis, Louis C.K. is incredibly talented, like, one of the most talented comedians of all time. He also For his time is... time place, he was really funny. Yeah, he's like, also, like, a, you I know, a, per, a pervert and uh, possibly guilty of sexual assault. It's, it's a weird gray area, but it seems more likely than not. But he'd never actually be convicted in court. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, the people uh, on Sorry is talented. He'll, he'll continue to work. And I guess it was a hiccup, you know, in their careers, but they'll they'll basically be just fine, I think. So yes, yeah, so that's part of it is that um, some people are hard to cancel. And then the other thing is going back to the anecdote you told at the beginning. Um, you know, you stirred up some shit on Twitter, and then someone unleashed their followers upon you, but it's from like a different part of Twitter than yours. And yeah. it's this idea that is is actually very obvious, but I only read it in the past couple of weeks, and it. Makes so much sense. You can only be canceled by your own side. Um, you know, all those people couldn't cancel you, and left Twitter can't cancel Brett Stevens. And, right. Um, but maybe like neocon Twitter could cancel Brett Stevens if they de- if they decided to. Maybe. Um, I don't think that neocon Twitter has any interest in like performing cancellation. I mean, like they do in their own right, and this is very interesting. But like. That like the language that we're using is it's specific to um, a certain subsect of society, right? Like how much of this actually exists in other places, um, and this is the interesting like like I think about this a lot. The when when people on the right and conservatives and people who are like enthusiastic capitalists um, get mad at cancel culture, really what that is is just like a market aggressively trying to reject a product, right? Uh Um, And, like, it's the market sort of working itself out in terms of it being the the consumer base or, like, a certain number of consumers um, who don't want that thing to exist any longer um, within the market. And so this is the, like, Hayek invisible hand of the market or whatever, whoever said it, (laughs) Um, (laughs) like, thing that they should hypothetically actually love, but they don't, I guess the market is also supposed to be, like, silent, right? It's not supposed to make a big hubbub about, like... And it's supposed to be about creamed corn. It's not supposed to be about individual people's careers. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I guess the... What the... I mean, what the conservatives say is, like, okay, you could, you know... It's the elites who are trying to cancel someone where the masses are still with them. So Louis C.K. can still fill a concert venue or whatever. Um, But, like, the... Um, a feat, you know, liberals on the coast uh, don't want him there. So they're trying to prevent uh, the uh, solid, hardworking Americans from getting access to Louis C.K. Right, but that's just, I mean, like, that's this sort of denial mechanism that they have for, like, I mean, they've been saying this for for decades, like, the silent majority nonsense. Um, or the moral majority, like all of these these people who don't really have a voice because they're silenced by the coastal elite liberals. Like, And that's just not that's not real. This is just something that like um, conservatives hold on to every day so that they can fall asleep and rest assured that one day they will have cultural capital. Like, um, like it's just not real. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and especially not with, with this like uh, call out culture and cancellation and me too, is that it's, it's from like a public, like a a large group of individuals that aren't necessarily elite that are making this, um, this argument louder than people in power would like it to be. Um, and so they basically just have it backwards that like, um, that, uh, 
it's people in power that are like sort of guiding these things when it's really not. It's it's mostly the it's the idea of power that really is like the driver and the motivator behind all of this stuff. But it's not people who actually have power that are doing it, which is the reason that it's so outrageous to most people. Like when people get really scared or head up about about Me Too or canceling cancel culture, whatever. um, It's it's because it's not really it's not divined by like, you know, people who have offices in corner rooms at the tops of buildings in New York city. Right. This is, this is people who are speaking, who are able to gather enthusiasm for their point of view because they share, uh, grievances with other people and they, you know, they're trying to, um, use their voice as a public to affect, like entertainment and it's mostly entertainment. It's not really anywhere else. I mean, sometimes it's politicians, but not really, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I hope that's not too rambly. I wanted it to make sense. Yeah. There's, I think there's (laughs) just, I don't know. Well, well, I, I what I I was thinking is like, okay, so, um, you know, uh, Brett Stevens has had this whole, uh, saga about his social media. There's actually, we did an episode of blogging heads, uh, with Daniel Bessner, Eli, Eli Lake debating it, but, um, you know, he's like stormed off Twitter in a huff and said, like, I'll never be on here again more than once. Right. Um, but the, maybe he'll, it's made such a, like, it would be pretty pathetic for him to come back at this point. He made such a huge Listen, deal about leaving. I've done this too. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most relatable thing that Brett Stevens has ever done. So you said, screw you guys, back, I'm going like, home. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's the irresistible lore of, of Twitter. Okay, but, so, it's so, okay, in some way, like, we could say that the people who yell at Brett Stevens on Twitter drove him off Twitter in some, in some way. Um, and, but he still has his job, and for some reason, New York Times op-ed columnist is lifetime tenure, and so he'll be there another 50 years. We wish him good health. Um, and the only person who can cancel him is his boss, you know, James Bennett, or like A.G. Sulzberger Jr., or whatever his name is. Um, so Brett Stevens, We'll be fine. But Brett Stevens, you know, when he was working like 15 years ago at the Wall Street Journal or wherever, he didn't have to hear from the rabble on Twitter. Um, he, he got maybe letters to the editor and weird emails, but he didn't get the kind of people like saying like, Brett Stevens, fuck you, you fucking suck, uh, that, you know, he's, he would be getting on Twitter all the time. And I, I, you know, pretty much if you're a prominent person in any respect, you're probably getting some level of people saying like, fuck you. Uh, go kill yourself. I'm going to murder you, uh, which is just the insanity of our current era and the technology. Um, so I guess, I mean, part of it is like, is cancel culture just because of Twitter? And the media elite has to be, has made Twitter, you know, their home. And so they have to be on there. But then you also have the rabble and the hoi polloi who are on there uh, making fun of these people and also the crazy people who are saying, you know, I want to put you in a gas chamber. Uh, so is, is it just the, you know, the, the invention of social media that has, you know, people were always angry at, you know, uh, columns in the newspaper, but you had to type out a letter to the editor if you wanted to make a big deal out of it. And that was, you know, that, that took a lot of time. And whereas now it's super easy to say, fuck you, Brett Stevens. I do. I I have a little bit of a unique perspective on this because like my dad was a a columnist for like a, a, a long time at a, um, somewhat prominent newspaper. And like, he had opinions that a lot of people really didn't like. And he, you know, before Twitter, the thing that columnists would do is it's not just letters to the editor where you'd have to like type up a letter and print it out and send it. You could also send emails, but also like columnists very frequently put out their, or their, their phone numbers. Mm -hmm. And so my dad would get calls and like, he just had mailboxes full of people screaming, just like, horrible things at him and usually he would either like this is the funny thing about Brett Stevens I think is that like Brett Stevens has to like cry right he has to cry in public he has to be like um he has to sort of like martyr himself in front of everyone like I'm just merely saying my wonderful very hard thought opinions out loud and you people are telling me to die and fuck myself etc <laughs> and like <laughs> and like he he has to sort of like lambast himself like in public so that so that people feel bad for him and he signs off when it's very clear that fewer people than he wants are are feeling bad for him right um and like i mean i've never actually talked about this with my dad but like my dad would keep these 
these voicemails and these emails mostly to himself. I would find them because I was a curious kid, but like, uh, and they were horrible. <laughs> like they threatened to murder his family. Like, um, but every once so in a while, you. Have th- threatening to murder you. Yeah. Me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, is stuff like that, but he, he would keep it to himself and sometimes he would engage with these people. Like he'd write them letters back being like, well, here's why you're wrong and here's why you're wrong and here's why you're wrong. And that was his favorite part about it. Um, he enjoyed this aspect of his job like immensely. And so I think that Brett Stevens is just a whiny brat. Um, because kind of being a columnist means a, a public figure in a capacity where you say things, um, and you're getting paid to have thoughts that most people aren't organically having, right? Um, You're in a state of sort of perpetual cancellation from a certain demographic of people, and it's part of your job, at least I I think that this might be what my dad would say, but it's certainly what I think. If you have this job, it's part of your job to deal with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, so, like, I don't know. This, it was... When I was observing this when I was younger, you know, it was obviously before cancellation was even a term, but I think that it's really interesting that, like, the way to deal with it is just to not deal with it in public. Especially for somebody like Brett Stevens. Yeah, and and certainly, um, you know, him sending the email to the guy and CCing the provost or whatever. It's a very stupid move for Mr. Stevens. Um, And then he brought... he wrote another column being like, poor me, I was compared to a bug. <laughs> yeah, and that that column was a misstep as well. And yeah, he was like, I mean, he, what he was essentially saying was like, you are doing a Holocaust to me. Like almost literally right. that's what he was saying, which is pretty insane. We're just talking about people like yelling and calling names on Twitter, which is, you know, a lot of what happens on Twitter. Um, but that's, I mean, that's like David Brooks also does this. Like, like people love claiming that there are holocausts happening to them all the time, especially if they're in positions of power where, like, they're not going to see any real monetary or, like, social ramifications to their position. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't know, you, I, I've been <laughs> thinking for a long time that, like, uh, something, something changed at some point in American history, I feel like, where um, it used to be, like, you wanted to be, like, the victor, and now you, like, want to be the victim. And, um, you know, Donald Trump often says, people are being very unfair to me. Um, right. And, like, if only, you know, if only the fake news and the lying New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, um, you know, uh, that kind of petulant, like, I could have won, but you didn't play fair, and that kind of thing. Like, everyone just sees himself as the victim. Some are legitimate victims. Uh, Brett Stevens... Uh, op-ed columnist for life for the New York Times, not a victim. Um, but, <laughs> not. but every, yeah, everyone just, uh, like kind of glories in, in victimhood. And it's, it, it's kind of weird for our, like, culture of, you know, uh, manly, uh, conquering the West and that, <laughs> that kind of thing. But, but, well, it's because it, it's because it came, like, it's, it's this sort of weird mutation of an already false narrative that we had about, like, American society as a whole, which was that we were, you know, this pathetic, tiny little nation that, beat up its dad and um, got its own apartment at age 17 (laughs) and, um, you know, like didn't have any money to go to college. And so we worked our way up in the corporation of the world. Um, And like the idea that America has always been this underdog, right? Um, This like small, uh, it's David and Goliath, us against literally anyone, including we had like, you know, something like that underdog narrative in Vietnam, Um, like it was clearly false in Korea. So like nobody ever even talked about Korea and we still don't. Um, and then like world war two, we were the underdog against the giant machine of the Nazis. Right. Um, and also like the cold war, like the USSR was this incredible machine, the likes of which no one had ever seen before. And you know, what was poor little capitalism (laughs) supposed to do (laughs) in this, um, quiet war of ideology and, uh, so this idea that like that it's something that individuals are able to very easily adopt, and you see this with like bootstraps, um, like this idea that you had to work your way up from nothing in order to have value, um, and that you consistently work the Protestant work ethic also within American ideas, and like now 
And I think that this is, it's partially because we're caught up in this constant and unrelenting dialogue via social media that things sort of get boiled down to their most base notions. And like what it really comes down to is the underdog sometimes loses. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and even though they're much more noble and they're secretly more powerful, the other side didn't play fair. And so it's very easy to turn this noble underdog idea into this like pathetic victim <laughs> of unfair circumstance and not have too much of a cognitive dissonance about them being particularly different. Yeah, I mean, I think if you um, spoke to like Trump supporters and Hillary Clinton supporters and asked them who was more unfavorably treated by the mainstream media in 2016 you know, they would each think that they were more fairly treated by the media. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. That, that makes a kind of sense. I, so, okay. So I want to talk about, um, who has actually been canceled, if anyone. So you, in your initial anecdote, you're talking about getting on the plane. So that's reminiscent of the famous story of Justine Sacco, who was this woman who yeah. tweeted an offensive joke and then got on a plane ride to Africa and this was in the early, this was like 2010 or so, early days of Twitter. And, um, I think it was Sam Biddle. Is it, am I, some tech columnist for like Gizmodo or something retweeted her off color, you know, offensive joke, uh, which was clearly met in jest, not seriously, um, about like, you know, uh, AIDS in Africa. And, uh, by the time her plane had landed, she had been fired from her job in public relations, which is, you know, she should have known better. But, yeah. um, but, her, but her life was certainly upended. There's a book by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed that came out kind of before, I guess, these, the cancel culture ter terminology came into being. And, like, yeah, her life was fucked up. Uh, like, it, this does happen. I think, you know, the, the, the times when it's just a random person who is somehow swept up in a social media storm, um, they, they so they have less power, they have less money, uh, less ability to, uh, like, craft a counter-narrative or something. So, like, the... Um, this guy who seemed mentally ill to me, who was in a, a bagel place in Long Island, who was oh yeah, the bagel boss, yeah, who was yelling at people about how women on dating sites didn't like him because he was too short, and this right, went, this clip went viral because it was just so strange, and in the end, the uh, someone punches the guy out. Um, uh, to me, this guy was clearly just mentally ill, and uh, yet there was this all you know kind of like celebration of of dunking on this small man. Uh, who was having a breakdown in a in a bagel store, and like, did he get canceled? He ended up uh, being on that stupid website, uh, Cameo, where you can pay someone twenty five dollars to like wish your cousin happy birthday in a video. Right? Club. Yeah, he's making money off of it. And, so yeah. I guess that's like kind of the new the new American dream. But like, you know, not that doesn't always happen to everyone. Uh, you know these, you know these these things like the viral the, the the person like having the worst day of their life that happens to be captured on video and then it becomes a viral video sto story. Um, I think that's, that's not good. And that's, that's different than like ragging on like a prominent, uh, comedian or writer or, <laughs> or journalist or something. I don't know. Do you remember that lady, this white lady, uh, who got on the, the phone and called the cops because like a seven year old black girl was selling water bottles. Yes. I do remember and that. she, she was like, you don't have a permit for this, which is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and, people investigated this this person and her whole life and like you know in, in situations like that i think the core of this conversation that we're having like in situations like that do people need to learn punitive lessons and i think that in that specific situation where somebody was literally just exercising their privilege over a child um is one in which, like, yeah, maybe this lady should lose her dogweed business for a few months, right? Because that's what right, I forgot her job what, was. Correct, you did. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't, unless the person is doing something, like, very bad, then um, I don't like this, <laughs> this trend in modern life. Um, and, you know, you, I mean, we only... Uh, a word, I don't know if you were looking at Twitter today, a word that was trending was uh, Covington because uh, people were, it was a weird 
weird trending topic because people were uh, conservatives are mad at the young woman uh, Greta. Was her last name Thalberg or Thunberg? Who is? Oh yeah, the climate you know leading this climate movement, and so they're yelling at a teenager. And then people on the left are saying, "How dare you yell at a teenage girl like that?" And then people on the right are saying, "Don't you remember what happened to Mr. Covington and blah blah blah?" And so. And, and the, the Covington debacle was such a like a, a waste of like a week of everyone's mental energy because was it, that it, those like like the, the shitty kids the teenagers yeah. in Washington are wearing the MAGA hats yeah uh, a totally like, stupid story should not down have been a Native American man with a drum yeah, yeah it should not have been an, a, even a local news story it was it was just that there was a video that was edited in a way to rouse people's passions and yeah yeah so i i this i feel like this a lot of this is you know a regrettable fact about our life that everyone has a camera on them at all times and they can upload anything to youtube at any time and and edit it selectively if if they want to or sometimes even the raw footage you know doesn't really show what what's truly happening and and what and, and and then why certain things come to the attention of political reporters and such, and they elevate it to the Washington Post. I guess that one was happening at a anti-abortion rally in Washington, D.C. That was part of it. But well. <laughs> it was like, you know, this is, this is not, you know, no one even, <laughs> I said this before on my show, no one even got punched in that, in that exchange. It was people looking at each other. So, yeah. like, if, if someone punched someone else, that's not a national news story. So people just looking at each other, <laughs> that's definitely not a national news story. And, there's you know, there's a lot of, of events like this. I don't know. I mean, there's just... There's such a, like, social media, Twitter especially, promotes such a bandwagon, us versus them kind of thing. And, you like, people just enjoy joining in and hating on their their enemy, even if they didn't know who this person was, you know, five minutes before. Right. And a lot of the time, it is people just trying to exercise some simulacrum of power in their otherwise powerless lives. Like, because there isn't, there isn't, and this is my problem with, like, Me Too and with all of the rest of the stuff, and this question specifically is, like, how many people have really been canceled? How many people really have, uh, you know, had damage to their personal lives done? And the answer is not many, and it's, like, it's because what this whole phenomenon is, is just... um like groups of people with very limited power coming together and trying to exercise some of it um, in situations where they want to see more justice actually being done. And the problem with, with uh, canceling and with me too specifically is that there's not a mechanism by which you can actually obtain any sort of real justice um, in any of these situations. And like, you know, you're not going to get, um, you're not going to get justice from yelling at people online. You're not really going to get justice from getting people fired. That's just the closest thing to um, any sort of leverage that you have over these people's lives. Uh, yeah. And it's it's the people who have less power that end up being the most impacted by this. Um <sighs> Like, yeah, so, so, like, so like the bagel boss guy, I didn't look super closely into this story, but I did watch the video multiple times because it was on Twitter constantly. Like if this, you know, I, I, I think I'm in the mi- minority by thinking that this guy was clearly mentally ill, but, um, you know, so I don't agree with you. Yeah. Okay. So does he, you know, could, is this a man who could hold down a job anyway? He probably got fired from the job. Uh, if that happened and maybe he's on like, you know, disability or something, if he can't hold down a job, um, and what, yeah, so what, so the, the, so the only lever is like the capitalist <laughs> lever of, of kicking him out of the system. And it's kind of funny w- w- if you think like the, um, the ideal world that a lot of the Twitter leftists, um, envisioned, like it wouldn't matter if you get fired from your job because you would, um, you know, you, you would maintain healthcare and you would probably be given some kind of monetary stipend or like job training to like move to some other uh, collectively owned enterprise. So what is, so then what you said is like, what's the, um, you know, what's the punishment for bagel boss guy and all these other like minor malefactors? Um, well, I mean, that is like a, that's a, a broader question that, cause then you get, you get into the idea of like what actually like in um, a leftist society would crime actually look like. Um, what's the gradient between personal offense and crime? Um, and then also like what any sort of punitive system would actually look like because this sort of thing where it's like, you know, expressing dissident opinions or something like that, or also just being a racist, like, which like 
does deserve it deserves something corrective happening to it like and that is all sort of included in this larger idea of like what um a leftist justice system would actually look like okay yeah so that's probably too big of a topic to um yeah to shoehorn in here so let's i'm not doing it (laughs) let's move away from that one did you um okay well let me run this one by you and then maybe one more topic after that so I, in a previous episode of the show with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, I put forward my personal theory that there's no cancellation but self-cancellation, um, which I think maybe aligns with what you're thinking. Like, you know, so there's these stories about, um, you know, um, young adult novelists who had their um, manuscripts questioned by, like, people who thought they were offensive, and then they, the, the authors themselves withdrew uh, from publication of their books um, this is mentioned in Osita's article, and actually Kat Rosenfield, who wrote about this, was saying on Twitter that uh, her writing had been mischaracterized, so let us note that. But, um, you know, the people who the people who don't withdraw their novels, like, like let's say there's, like, a conservative young adult <laughs> uh, novelist, and he includes something that's a little offensive, and then a storm is kicked up, but he doesn't care about pissing off you know, the uh, people from racial minorities who might possibly be offended. So he goes ahead with publication, and then uh, he makes money. Uh, meanwhile, the the person who, like, inadvertently perhaps included some racial stereotypes in their young adult novel, they withdraw it, and so they lose out on, um, you know, publicity and making money and and so forth. So in most, yeah, in most cases, like, if people just keep their heads down, they kind of like ride it out, like Ansari and CK seem to have been able to do. Yeah. And, and in other cases, like if you don't resign or, you know, withdraw, you know, say we're not going to release our movie anymore or something along those lines, like the, like the attention just moves on to some other thing because it's always a new outrage. And usually you'll just be fine. So <laughs> for that would be my, general advice for anyone who is uh, in the targets of being canceled is just, you know, stay strong <laughs> and you'll, you'll probably be fine. Right. And I mean, like, it's not to say that some instances of cancellation aren't justified. It's just like, if you're an intelligent human being, you don't engage with this, right? Um, the idea is to, like, mostly the thing that people want to achieve is just to never hear about you again. Um, like, you know, when people on the internet were yelling at me, um, I locked while I was on an airplane because I was like, it's going to be an hour and 20 minutes. People are going to be real mad at me. So I just, I locked up for a minute and people were sharing a screenshot of, of my page being locked and sending it to the person who I had just harmed. Um, and were like, well, look, I hope this makes you feel better. Look, she's no longer a public account. Like, which was, that's that's the thing that they wanted. They wanted me to go away. And so when I came back, it just got worse. Um, the idea is, yeah, like, basically, you just... If you just ride it out for long enough, people are going to forget and not care about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... And that's sort of... That's sort of the problem with, like, you know, every time a comedian gets called out for this or um, anytime somebody who's, like, online gets called out for things, they have to engage with it because, you know, a lot of their personality is just saying things out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just log off for a little bit, you can come back later. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I, I think, you know, there's this whole thing. Um, I don't know if it happens on right Twitter. Definitely happens on left Twitter. You're trolling someone, they block you, you post the screenshots, you've won. Like, you got, you got right. to them, you forced them to do something and, like, admit that they couldn't stand your trolling anymore. Um, so right. when you locked your account, there were probably, some, yeah, some people who were like, we did it, like, she can't, you know, spout her nonsense all over the internet anymore. And then you unlock four hours later. <laughs> yeah, maybe something just- else. Someone else has had a meltdown in a bagel shop in Long Island and... Yeah, I mean, it didn't actually happen that way. They continued to, like, yeah, they really just, they wanted the cancel button to work better. And so they were, like, calling the genius bar, trying to troubleshoot it. Like, just, (laughs) honestly, like, I ended up having people in my mentions for just hours. It was very odd. I blocked a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And then it was sort of like at the at the end when I thought everything was over, that Ragnarok lobster guy showed up. Oh, <laughs> and, man. <laughs> yeah, he started yelling at me too, and I was like, okay, so this means that it's over, right? Like, this guy, <laughs> they're clearly no longer uh, sending their best. Wait, so were these like pro-Clinton like Clinton people or something who were going after Yeah, uh, it was like liberal Twitter. It, basically, um, like what happened was... This lady who has been extremely racist in the past, um, but she's, you know, she says that she's getting a PhD in history of law or something. Um, she did a post about how Bernie Sanders tweet that Brett Kavanaugh should never be a judge wasn't enough. Um, that he needed to mention Brett Kavanaugh's victims in his initial tweet and not later in the thread, um, that he was, you know, women don't matter or whatever. And as, a, you know, I also, that went through a sexual assault that was pretty similar to Christine Blasey Ford. And at the time that this whole hearing was happening, I was working at Planned Parenthood. And so I had to engage with this whole thing directly, this national conversation that we were having, mm-hmm. like as part of my job. And so like, it's kind of a sensitive subject for me. Um, and what it seemed that this person was doing to me was that they were utilizing the, the, um, the sexual assault of other people as leverage to condemn somebody else. And for me personally, I don't think that other people's sexual assault exists so that other people can identify with it. But that's clearly like what this person was doing, like centering themselves in this conversation in order to gain political points against Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And so I called that out and they all got mad at me because this person speaks up against sexual assault (laughs) <laughs> that's and, the thing that yelled at me a lot and did this person like direct her followers to, yes. to you or just like retweet or how did they yeah put there, you was on a, blast? there was a lot of like this person used terrible language against me a sexual assault survivor and then in my mentions i got a couple of like twenty thousand follower accounts being like your tweet is abuse and i was like that's really not true that's not what that means Please stop using like like this type of language against me. Uh, but they wanted to tell me that I was, you know, gaslighting them. I was a harasser. I was an abuser. And then it sort of, as as I just refused to log off longer and longer, it, it ramped up to your sexual assault didn't even happen. Um, I got quote tweeted with this person just made up this experience that happened to them um, because they want to defend their bad tweet, like you know, denial of my actual personal experience. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that where, like, for maybe an hour, I was like, this is really bad. <laughs> like, this is horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Ragnarok Lobster had to post and say, like, oh, you're a gaslighter. And I was like, I'm sorry. I got way too in my head about this. This is all just complete and utter nonsense. <laughs> I'm just going to mute this thread <laughs> uh-huh. and move along with the rest of my life. Yeah. I think, um, um, so yeah, sorry you, you underwent uh, partial cancellation or attempted cancellation or whatever. That sounds miserable. Um, I think, you know, there's a, there's, I don't know, should there be a difference between, um, being canceled for something you did or versus something you said or wrote? Um, you know, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're <laughs> the, the Me Too stuff is almost entirely men taking, uh, actions that are um, abusive or assault or you know criminal or all the above um, versus yeah. so, you know a tweet that is bad you know <laughs> what is the um, I got you know there, I guess there's this kind of idea in some parts of like the social justice left that um, you know like words words can be violence and stuff um, that seems dubious to me. But, you know, how, how much do you care about just what some person said, especially when it's just a random person out there on the Internet? Uh, you yeah. know, we're not thinking about D- Donald Trump and all the crazy things he says every day. It's, it's just like someone someone said something that, like, does this matter? I, I, you know, that, that, that's where I'm, I, I usually think no. Um, it, it doesn't really, you know, just let them go on with their stupidity. It, it, like, we don't need to call them out and make their afternoon miserable or something. But maybe, I mean, it's fun for people who do it. It's fun. Like that's part of the motivation behind it is that like, it's really, really fun to fancy yourself being in a correct position over somebody else. Right. That's it's entertainment. 
Yeah, I mean, like, like, you know, moral righteousness and, like, zeal and feeling like you're fighting for the, like, cause of goodness in the, in the universe uh, feels right. Right. Um, like, yeah. Um, well, did you, um, maybe this, we were almost on an hour, so maybe this is the last thing. Did you see the Michelle Goldberg column um, from last week, uh, Roy Cohn is how we got Trump? No. Um, well, uh, the, the link will be below. Um, so Michelle Goldberg, uh, also at the New York Times op-ed page, the only op-ed page that matters, um, seemingly. And so she wrote a piece about Roy Cohn because I, I, there's a documentary about Cohn that, that just came out. And, um, you know, Cohn was, uh, uh, worked with McCarthy, uh, to go after right. supposed communists. And then, um, he eventually was a private lawyer in New York and, uh, was kind of a counselor to, uh, Donald Trump in the 80s, um, but was leading a double life as a gay man, and he died of AIDS, um, and but never admitted that he was gay or that he had AIDS. Um, but Goldberg writes about how, you know, Con, Con or Cohen, I'm not exactly sure, my last name is Cohen, so we'll say, we'll say Cohen, he was basically an evil person his entire life, but he was kind of somewhere between, like, tolerated and celebrated by the elite in New York City uh, after he, you know, left government because he was this kind of, like, bad dude who would, like, you know, say outrageous things and had, and was connected to the mob. Like, you know, he was a, kind of a mob lawyer. And, uh, every, and, you know, he had this, like, past where he had done sh- shady tricks and kind of things. And so he was, like, you know, a- Andy Warhol had him at his parties and people, like, you know, kind of celebrated him as this... Uh, Curiosity, who would hang around, and um, you know they tolerated his 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 evil essentially. And she says, you know, where was the you know maybe we need some cancel culture to uh, replace this culture of you know um, thinking that like if you're if you're bad that means you're cool and we should we should accept you instead of like oh you did a lot of bad shit in your past like you know I don't want to invite you to my dinner party anymore. So that was so she says that's the attitude that prevailed in New York City during the 70s and 80s when a certain uh, young real estate developer named Donald Trump also played a similar game of being the sort of clownish, outrageous bad boy who people tolerated because he was good for a laugh and, yeah, etc. Hmm. Well, I think that's, I mean, like, you know how people are constantly just punching it different things trying to hit the thing that actually gave us Donald Trump. Um, this kind of sounds like another one of those things mm-hmm. when like really like cancel culture, isn't going to, to solve the idea that we reward vile people for their vile behavior. Um, the reason that they get rewarded is, I mean, it's not so much the, the while the reward is often like it manifests itself socially, it's mostly monetary. Um, and like we reward people for having money regardless of how they got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like cancel culture is not going to get rid of people in powerful situations unless you overhaul the system that rewards that to begin with. Right. <laughs> um, like there's not, unless you actually are able to, to actually confront power, then there's no way that you're going to stop rewarding these bad people for, having success for doing bad things. Like Uh I saw, I can't remember there was an article like last week and I can't remember what it was. I wish I could. Um, but it, it was basically about the idea that even though, um, the average American is told throughout their life that if they work hard, they can achieve like whatever, like we're just given Protestant work ethic constantly. Uh Uh, we've watched like, um, like Jerry Falwell types and also like uh, Amway and um, pyramid schemes and all of these things that are short, quick ways to get money ending up creating like gigantic networks of billionaires that extract money from the most poor people in the country. And then you get like Eric Prince's and Betsy DeVos's out of that sort of system and Jerry Falwell Jr.'s. And the the reality is that even though we're told out loud that, um, you know, being ethical and moral and working very hard is the thing that's going to get us success. The thing that we're demonstrated, the thing that is demonstrated to us that will make you successful is being a scam artist Mm -hmm. and, um, not actually caring about other people. (laughs) 
um, but pretending to in such a way where like you become successful through that. Um, so yeah, like we didn't, we got Trump because we reward scamming people. Um, and you know, I don't think that canceling Ray Cohn or canceling the, the things that make these people rich and famous is going to actually have the result that, um, we want. It's going to require something bigger and a social change with greater magnitude. If we actually want to do that, which choose to say that we would as a society, you know? Yeah. And there's definitely, you know, there's, uh, as been noted, there's like an increased cultural appetite for stories about scammers over the past couple of years. Our president is a scammer. Um, (laughs) and, you know, we love this. Yeah. Well, there's something, I mean, there's like, like there were two, two documentaries about the fire festival and I watched both of them. Like there's something, there's something delicious in a scam. And then there's something delicious in the scam being, you know, falling apart. And I oh, guess you know what the, the, successful, the article, the successful sorry. scams you, I guess, often don't hear about because they ride off into the sunset or something. Yeah. Um, the, I remembered what it was. I, I listened to Gia Tolentino's audiobook, um, Trick Mirror mm-hmm. that just came out. Personally, I think it's great. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have a copy of the book. <laughs> yeah, and it's, like, that's that's what I was tell. thinking of. Is I listened to it last week, and she hasn't that because she was in the Fire Festival documentary, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, and you. I mean, just you know, the, like there's. I can think of right off the top of my head uh, three different podcasts about scams or multi-level marketing that I've listened to in the, in the past year. I don't know if it's an American thing or just a human thing. Something about. Like the you know the, the trickster or something we're uh, we're attracted to. Um, I think the, that's all the things I wanted to talk about. Do you have anything else you want to mention before we close out? Not really. Um, I am on a podcast. Another one. Okay. Um, it's about the Brian Jakes books for children, Redwall, um, <laughs> and it's called the Redwall Pod. And is if this... anybody wants to listen to it, I've got cool recipes. Uh, is that the? Um, it's like mice. Yeah, it's about little animals that live in an abbey, and they're constantly, uh, like, fighting against the evils of the world that usually manifest as rats and weasels. Um, and so we just talk about those books because the panel has, like, a lot of memories growing up and reading them. Okay. And I, I think the food is cool, so. <laughs> I, I think I did not read that as a kid, but was vaguely, vaguely aware of it. Um, well. But we'll, we'll include the link to that. And what, what's the name of that one again? It's called the red wall. Uh, the red wall. The red wall. Just, okay. Yeah. Um, and as you said, you're on Twitter as Epona West. Yeah, I'm the ghost wife. And you were you are the ghost wife. I am on Twitter as R E A Cohen Wade. A R Y H C W is the handle. Um, uh, so thank you uh, so much uh, for coming on and talking cancel culture. I'm glad you did not actually get canceled, at least thank before you. you were able to make this appearance. That's right. Um, so and. Um, Hopefully the people in the comments will not cancel us either. Um, okay. Yeah. So. I didn't say, I'd like, listen, <laughs> I'm not canceling anybody and I'm not not canceling anybody. I'm in a constant state of non-cancellation. <laughs> like I'm Schrodinger's cancel okay, right yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. It's like, a, you're, yeah. I didn't open the box, man. <laughs> so super, Don't yell at me. A super position. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like, we're all, we're all somewhere in between. And then eventually you find out and you're like, Oh man. Canceled all along. Um, Okay, so uh, thank you, Melly. Thank you to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. All right, bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.